The following sermon audio is from The Source Church in Plainfield, Illinois. More information about The Source can be found at www.sourcechurch.net. Our teaching this morning is in the book of Hebrews, and we'll be looking at um, chapter 4, starting in verse 14, and then going through chapter 5, verse 10. So, if you have one of these blue Bibles from the back, that is on page 582. So again, Hebrews 4, verse 14, through chapter 5, verse 10. Please stand with me as we read God's Word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes his honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. We thank God for his holy word. You can be seated. Not yet. Okay, there we go. I was just thanking Pastor Scott for reading that uh, for us. Uh, again, you see on the screen, we'll be looking at Hebrews. Uh, it's a continuation of where we are. This particular series we're calling it Jesus is Better. But before I start, let me say a quick prayer, please. Father God, thank you for uh, the freedom that we have that you have put in front of us, your word, your exact revealed word that you want us to dwell upon and uh, to take on to, uh, take into our hearts to learn and to let it impact our lives. So Father, I pray that today that everyone here in this will feel the impact of the words that you have prepared for them, that they will not walk away from this unchanged, but you will have delivered exactly what you want them to hear and uh, exactly at the point you want them to hear it. So Father, we thank you, we praise you, in your son's name I pray. Victor, one of the pastors here. I don't get to do this often. Um, 
you know, if you play sports, you know what it's like to be the backup. You know, you don't, you're just so excited to get out there on the field sometimes. So I, I am excited to, uh, to play the, the lead role here today to bring this word to you. And we've been following uh, some good messages. Uh, you heard from uh, uh, three people who have been delivering great messages about Hebrews. And we're picking it apart uh, for you. And I hope that you are following along and not just stopping here when we stop, but that you go back because you'll see that the author is repeating various themes at various times. So go back through the whole thing. It'll be easier the second time you read it to catch up to where we are. And, it'll, and, and everything will just start to gel in, um, even more. And so as we do this, you might find that some of the terminologies, the points that are being made, some of the assumptions being made by the author, you might not be familiar with them. If you've grown up in the Christian church, maybe you are. If not, some of those things might be familiar. What we're doing is comparing Jesus, the author is, to others, to other items, to other things, and we're showing that Jesus is better. In chapter 1, he started off by saying Jesus is better than the angels. That may have been because there was so much attention on the angels at the time, he needed to start off right there. But then he moved to chapter 2, Jesus is better than Moses, and this being a predominantly Jewish Background. They knew who Moses was. Today we're going to look at Jesus being better than Aaron. If Aaron is not a familiar name to you, don't worry. You know, I'll try to explain a few things as I go on, as I'm learning it and, and expound, expound that to you. But Aaron is the brother of Moses. Moses, I'm sure you know, was, uh, was rescued or pulled, led the Jews out of, out of Egypt. They were under slavery, being uh, persecuted, and he led about two million of them out into the desert. And there, G uh, God gave them various laws and introduced various practices, policies, one of which was the priesthood. And Aaron, being the brother of Moses, was appointed the first high priest of that priesthood. So that will, so you'll see that the high priest is mentioned very much throughout Hebrews. It's been mentioned twice already. And today, we're going to see it mentioned in a slightly different way. So, the structure of today's message is that we're going to look first at Jesus being introduced as a high priest. And then we'll see how that should motivate us. And then we'll move, that's going to cover in chapter 4, the last two, last two or three verses of chapter 4. And then we'll move to chapter 5, where we'll compare and contrast the human high priest, Aaron, and his descendants, those who are in the priesthood, compare with the divine high priest, Jesus being the high priest. Then we'll come back and look at the last verse in chapter 4, with fresh eyes, with new eyes, having gone through a few verses in chapter 5, you're going to see chapter 4 in a new light. And that's my hope for, for you today. Right? So let's start off with verse 14 of chapter 4. Since then, and 
I would use different words here than what's in the, ES, in the ESV. Since therefore we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. And let me back up, because when we say therefore, you want to know what was coming in front of it. Last, the prior verse, the author was saying, no creature is hidden from his sight, from God's sight. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Now, to this Jewish community, when they hear we must give an account, I think they knew what was being discussed. I think they knew how scary that is, how lonely it can be sometimes. But really, I, th I think it's more scary. Because I, I think they knew they will remember uh, Korah, well, not Korah, but. Um, when Moses went up to the Mount Zion and he left Aaron and the Israelites uh, while he was talking to God, they went ahead and convinced Aaron, let us make a golden calf and worship this calf because we don't know what's happening to Moses. He's not going to come back. And so they did that. But that made God very angry. That made Moses very angry. The result was that most God instructed Moses that they need to take out 3,000 men. But not just take them out, they were taken out by their brothers. That's, that's pretty scary. So I think this audience, when they hear that you must give an account, because they were called to give an account that day, 3,000 of them were just wiped out by their own relatives. This is scary. So you need a high priest who can be on in your behalf. So that's, and they knew what the job of a high priest was, right? And we'll expound on that again a little bit later. So let us hold fast to our confession. You have a high priest. You know you're going to have to be accountable. And he is on your side. So let us hold fast to our confession. Does that mean what is what confession? What does hold fast? I think you can get the gist of that, right? You're holding to something and not letting go. This is yours, you're going to claim it, you're going to use it, right? But what is this confession? Confession, and we did that earlier, is an affirmation of something that is true, and we repeat various truths so that we remember and be reminded of those truths so that we can hold on to them. At the beginning of, of the letter to Hebrews, these truths were described as such. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. So we know the truth is God. But today, in these last days, this is to the audience at that time, He's spoken to us through Jesus, through, by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by his word, by the word of his power. And after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of his majesty. Fast forward a little bit. 
To many of us, that confession sounds a little bit familiar. To the believer, we might think of Romans chapter 10, verse 9, where it says, uh, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that he died and was raised again, you will be saved. It's a confession that many believers start their believing life with. Confess that Jesus is Lord. Well, that's what the he, that's what the, the writer just said. All those things that were in the first paragraph of the letter was basically pointing to Jesus as being Lord. He is the creator. He is preeminent. He is God. And he died for your sins. Right? He, made, he, he made purification for your sins. And then he sat. That means he didn't, he's not dead anymore. He was resurrected at the right hand of God. So that is our confession. That is the confession that the Hebrews were hearing when the author said, hold fast to that confession. Hold fast to the fact that Jesus is Lord. Then he goes on to say, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So why do we, what, does the two, what do the two things have to do with each other? The confession and the high priest. Their assumption there is that the audience hearing this knew that they needed a high priest. They needed someone in their corner. They needed an advocate to reconcile themselves to God because they knew they were sinners. They knew that they themselves could not do it. After all, the whole priesthood was designed around day after day or week after week, giving gifts and sacrifices to God. And we'll touch on that here in a second. The audience knew that. I know that, that I need a high priest. My hope is that you know that too, that you need a high priest. And if you think you do, and you're not sure what to do with that, you come see me or Pastor Scott, Pastor Craig afterwards. But we, not just, we don't just have a high priest. Notice at the very beginning, he said, we have a great high priest. So the, the priesthood up to this point were giving sacrifices regularly because it wasn't enough. There's only one great high priest, so whatever he does, obviously, is going to be enough. We have a great high priest who's advocating for us in the heavens. The first audience would recognize when the, when the author says, we have a great high priest, they knew what that meant. So, in chapter 2, the author, verse 17, the author also said this. Therefore, he, referring to Jesus, had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest. That ties in with what we just read. 
We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize. Notice the double negative. We do not have a high priest who is unable. It's a literary style that's used to really emphasize a point. That means, obviously, we have a high priest who is able to do, to sympathize with us. Today we might say, instead of using the double negative, we might say something like, um, he's super able to identify with us. I don't know. My daughters would correct me on that. But he is able to sympathize with us, and that's different from empathize. Right? This is not just understanding feelings. Uh, not sure how many of us might remember back in the early 90s, there was a, a gentleman named Lech Walesa, Lech Walesa and I'm, I'm sure I'm going to butcher his Polish last name. But he was an electrician in Poland back in the early 1990s on the Warsaw shipyards. He recognized, because he was a shipyard member, a member of the group being persecuted, he recognized something needed to be done. And he was able to motivate thousands and maybe and eventually the whole country into resolving those, those, in, those grievances, resolving the, the, the persecution that they were going on there. And he rose to the level of even being the first prime, the first president, democratically chosen president of Poland. Because he identified exactly what was happening. And he created a group called Solidarity. And that word, I think I would, you know, at the risk of putting things into the Bible, but that isn't there, I would say that we need a high priest who has solidarity with us. He, and that's what happened with Jesus. He became like us. And he was tempted like us. So he knew exactly what we're going through, what you're going through. Yet, without sin. And with all that happening, and because he's able to identify with us, and yet without sin, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. And you might read that, let us, we're being encouraged to hold on, let us approach the throne because it's all us so that we can receive grace. We're, we're looking for grace in the time of, and help in the time of need. After all, What's the benefit of having someone identify with us if we can do it ourselves? What's the benefit of that? After Lekwalesa became Poland, there were other qualified people who became president of that country. Probably did a good job even though they weren't electricians. They were able to lead the country even though they didn't grow up as on the shipyards. That's not the case with us and with Jesus. Because notice again with the priesthood, there was they had their their practices that they had to keep repeating over and over. But let's compare then what that priesthood, priests of man versus this great high priest, what the difference would be. Why is it important that Jesus 
is able to identify with us, sympathize with us, be in solidarity with us, and to do that without sin. Why is that important? We'll jump to, church, we'll jump to chapter 5, and then look at the priesthood a little bit. We're going to see much over the next few weeks talked about the priesthood, so I'm going to skim over. I'm not going to do a deep, deep dive into what a high priest does, what is a priest. I'll leave that to more skilled hands than myself. For every high priest chosen from, among, uh, chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. No one takes this on lightly. No one takes this on, takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So they were called, they were appointed by God. The priesthood, the high priest, were appointed by God to serve God's people. That representation that comes with the task of offering gifts and sacrifices on behalf of the people, for the sins of the people. So he's a servant, and he's an advocate, because he's offering up gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. It also comes with the task of dealing with the wayward and the ignorant. The wayward are those who know God, but are strained due to weakness, maybe due to disobedience, sometimes even due to rebellion. They previously acknowledged Jesus as Lord or God as uh, the author of everything, but they are not holding fast to that confession. These are the wayward. And the ignorant are those who don't really know Jesus, who don't really know who the great high priest is, or they don't really know God. They haven't confessed, they haven't really in their life been living like uh, there is a God, there is an almighty God. In fact, they might be like, like the guy on the, in the raft floating down the Niagara River. It's kind of calm, but coming up around the bend is this huge fall. So the high priest is to deal with them help them along the way. And that reminds me of uh, what we read, what we read in, in Thessalonians. First Thessalonians chapter 5 verse 14 Paul was urging the, the brothers admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. So the high priest served God's people be an advocate for them, admonish them, encourage them, help them. Now the normal high priest can deal with the ignorant and the wayward gently because he himself is a sinner. He himself is weak. He has to address his own sins as well. He has to advocate for himself. As you can imagine, sometimes that doesn't go well. In 
fact, uh, tradition has it that one of the things that uh, the high priest, which he was tasked with going into the Holy of Holies behind a huge curtain, he had to do sacrifices and cleansing uh, of himself to get rid, to atone for his sins before he can go in there and, and to offer up sacrifices for others. And in doing so, one of the things that they would do is tie a rope around his feet, around his leg, so that when he goes in, if for some reason, whatever he did outside wasn't enough, and he was struck dead, priests outside could pull him up with the rope. That's how much confidence they had in their great high, in their high priest. Yeah, we'll send you in there, but just in case, we're not going in there for you. We're just going to pull you out. That's a lot of pressure. And by the way, you might notice that the list that I just went through, it sounds familiar. Does that sound familiar like maybe the elders of an elder-led church? Serve the people. They're to admonish the weak, help the weak, encourage the faint, the, uh, the faint of heart. Today, a lot of people are substituting, instead of turning to uh, a godly person for those items, for those things to be admonished, to be encouraged, to be helped, they're turning to things like influencers on the internet. And probably, and, it, and it's, it's sometimes sneaky because it's not just one person. This person can give me advice on this. And whatever they say is true. So much is learned from influencers out in, in this media-saturated culture of ours that we forget that God had actually laid out a plan for us to grow and to grow in Him and to give Him the glory. I'll get off my high horse in that regard and then move on to the next section of, of chapter 5 where the author now talks about Jesus. So also, this is verse 5, so also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest but was appointed by him. So God appointed the high priest, the human high priest, God appointed Christ. The difference is God appointed man out of weak, frail man. But the great high priest, he appointed, as the next verse says, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, you are a, high, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So he appointed God to be that high priest. Because if you're a son of God, you are God. And Melchizedek, we, we learn about, he just entered the scene real quickly in Genesis uh, chapter 17, I believe, or chapter 14. He was a priest. This was before Moses. He was a priest of a Gentile group, but God was using him because he was a priest of the Lord back then, and he blessed Abraham after a battle. But it also noted there that he was a king. So after the order of Melchizedek, let's just say, leave it here, because there's much that's going to be talked about Melchizedek again coming up. But 
let's just say that he was a priest and a king. So he was rightly uh, eminent in, in offering of sacrifices and blessing Abraham. And if Jesus is after that, as well as being the son of God, he's preeminently qualified to be the great high priest. And as appointed by God, he can accomplish that. In verse 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. So this God-man offered up prayers and sacrifices and some of the same things that we see the same word offered up used with the high priest was used with Jesus but he didn't just offer up general sacrifices he offered up himself as the main sacrifice the only sacrifice and he prayed loud prayers to the one who could save him from death. And when it says he was heard, that means he was saved. His prayers were heard and answered, that he was raised from death by the one who could do that. So this God-man died as a sacrifice and was raised. And although in verse 6 he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Okay? might also sound strange too. What, how could he learn obedience and not sin? Doesn't learning something mean we kind of have to have done it the wrong way? That's not what was implied here. What this is saying is that he demonstrated obedience. This is what obedience looks like. We should understand that. This is why we follow Christ, because he demonstrated what it means just be submissive to the one who called you. And if he's calling you, he's asking you, he's pleading with you, obey him, to be submissive to him. So even though he was a son, he was submissive to the Father through what he suffered and being made perfect, verse 9, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. And being made perfect, again, that might sound a little bit strange, like he was imperfect first, but that's not the case. What this means is he completed the work. So when the work is done, you can step back and go, okay, perfect. So I'm comparing again the list that I went through with the high priest with Jesus he was an advocate for us but he was a proxy for us instead of us going through the sin uh, death going through suffering for the sin he did that for us he brought grace to us by being that uh, perfect lamb perfect sacrifice so that we wouldn't go through that at the time of reckoning. He was also the Savior. 
because he died for us and was raised again, he completed the work. He was made perfect and became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. By the way, another little detour here. Hebrews verse five, I mean chapter five, verse nine. That's the concept. That's the uh, the thought that the, the source church was built upon, and where we get the source from, the source of eternal salvation. So that confession is another one that we need to hold fast to. Jesus Christ was made perfect. He completed the work completely. One done. When he said on the cross, it is finished, that means it is finished, it is done. And through that, he became the source of eternal salvation for you, for me, for all who would confess with their mouth that he is Lord, and believe that he, raised, he was raised again from the dead. So memorize that, Hebrews 5 verse 9. But let's jump back to chapter 4, verse 16. And read that again. Where it says, Let us then with confidence draw near. So you know all of these things about Jesus that you've just learned. So let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. But I want to point out something. Now that you know that Jesus has completed the work and you are being encouraged to hold fast to your confession. You were thinking, this passage says you can hold fast and you can draw near to the one who can help you, who can give you grace. So it might, you might read it something like this. Hold fast, you have a great high priest who feels your pain so that you can draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy as he encourages you to hold on some more and to help you to hold on as tight as you can. Christ being the eternal, the source of eternal salvation, having made, having completed the work and made it perfect for us to be saved. Read that verse again and read it like this. Hold fast. The sinless high priest died for your eternal salvation so that you can confidently draw near to the throne of grace receive mercy, brackets, forgiveness of sins, and find help, brackets, eternal salvation in time of need. Does that make sense? That verse takes on a whole new light when you put it up beside the fact that Jesus is the source of eternal salvation. He accomplished the work. So this encouragement to hold fast Yes, please do. Hold fast to your confession. But understand with confidence who's really holding you. I remember, uh, this reminds me of a, a movie that I saw, um, some of you might have seen it, one of the Mission Impossible movies, um, where the lead character somehow ended up on the outside of a plane as it is taking off, and he is holding on to the outside of this plane. 
three, four hundred miles an hour, it's going off in there, and he's holding on. You might feel like that's what you're encouraged to hold fast, because if you let go, you are toast. But that's not the complete picture. It's more like as he's holding on and he's looking down and he's going, oh, okay, he feels a hand holding him. And he looks at the hand and he sees a big old scar. He looks up and his eyes meet with soft eyes reddened by tears and pain. Looks at the head and he sees what looks like poke marks, scar marks on the head. The thorns were poking in, where a nail was driven through hands, where tears of blood were streaking down. He is holding on to this hand that was trying to hold on. That's the confidence that we can approach with our confession. Hold fast to your confession because Christ is holding fast to you. After hearing a message like that, I think we fall into two groups. One, who is encouraged by that you're already holding fast, you already know that fact, you're already holding on to and you're living through your confession. Uh, which, by the way, what does that look like? When you're holding fast to your confession, what does that look like? If I were to use myself as an example, I said, well, I am male, married to a lovely wife, Three marvelous children. That's my confession. Does that mean that as male and head of household that if I'm not making more than my wife then I'm not male? Does it mean that my wife, if I'm not providing for her, if I'm not attending, making sure that her needs are attended to, that I'm not a husband? So these truths are truths that I would hold on to. If I want to be a husband, if I want to be a father, I will protect my children. If I'm not giving them, teaching them about what Christ has done for them, am I protecting them or not? So that's what it means to hold fast to your confession. You follow that string. If Jesus is Lord in your life, how are you living your life? Are you living that godly life only on Sunday mornings when you come to church and you hear a message and you hear a great song and you praise God, you lift your hands, and then you go home and you flip on to a movie that has words that will make a sailor blush. Or for so many people, they troll the internet and get into images that just will make your eyes blush. 
does it mean to hold fast to your confession? One of the things that we do while we encourage you to go into life groups, to come to the gathered Sunday morning services, is that you keep learning what it means to hold fast to that confession. We learned a few months ago in Corinthians, if Jesus was not resurrected, it's not, then what we're professing is, is worthless, it's useless. Are you living like Jesus was resurrected? Did he truly die for your sins? And if he did, how grateful are you? How blessed do you feel that he should come down, take on the form of man, become that perfect sacrifice, complete the work of salvation, go back to heaven to be your advocate, make a way for you to be reconciled with Christ, and you're going to live like this? I trust many of us today are convicted with this message. And I'd invite you, if you are convicted by this message and you need to uh, need to address something, I would, maybe you don't share communion with us, but if you do feel convicted by this message, you should join us in communion to celebrate the sacrifice that Christ did on your behalf, on my behalf. If you're not a believer, this is the one time that we say, maybe you don't really understand what that sacrifice meant yet, so probably shouldn't participate in communion. And so that's what we're, we're going to do now. We do this every Sunday. We confess truths. We celebrate the ordinance of communion of what Christ did for us.